Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church for our second session this morning. Uh, second session this morning is going to be part of our continuing study on the the presentation of the gospel. Uh, what is the gospel? We can probably present this in several ways, gospel verses, something of that nature. But anyhow, <clears throat> it's our opportunity, of course, during this second session to do many things. The first thing, of course, is our, our spiritual preparation. And the way we'll prepare this morning is uh, by giving you the opportunity to listen to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, or 2, actually, through 10. This is a critical verse for us this morning. So <clears throat> as we listen to the passage, uh, just try, you'll be able to reapply it here in a little bit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, a tremendous passage that combines both faith, grace, and works and really puts it all in the right perspective. And so uh, we'll need that perspective as we examine our passages this morning. This is also our opportunity for uh, our reciprocation of love to, uh, to the Father through giving. And as we've often said, uh, if the Lord wanted to provide for all of his ministries, he could change stones into money. He could uh, take anything and provide for anything that he that is needed. But he allows us the privilege, really, to uh, respond, to demonstrate our spiritual maturity and the understanding, the gratitude that we have for what he has provided for us. And that is what occurs during the offering. We are really thinking of him and what he has done for us and so we express our love and our gratitude to him in giving. And, of course, there's no pressure here. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 that we should give, 2 Corinthians 9. He says that everyone, each believer, should give just as you purpose in your own hearts, not grudgingly or under uh, compulsion, for the Lord loves a willing giver. Let's take a few seconds for spiritual preparation, and then I'll open us in prayer. Generally, Father, we're thankful for each text of Scripture that we study. We pray, Father, that we would not be confused by the words, maybe by the English translations, but in fact, understand the, uh, the meaning that the author intended when it was written. We're also thankful for this opportunity for us to express our gratitude to you in giving. We're thankful for the many blessings that you've given us and, Father, uh, in, uh, in our gratitude, we are returning some of them to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get started, just a thought or two here. Uh, for those of you who were paying close attention during uh, the previous uh, message, uh, you may have noticed in the last three trials of our Lord, I was listening the approximate times. And for some reason, when I went from uh, 2 a.m. to 3, some of you, being very perceptive, noticed that I switched to p.m. And that was really a test to see if you were paying attention. <laughs> Supposed to be a.m., Supposed to be a.m. Now you know, if it had previously eluded you, that I'm not perfect. <laughs> Our scripture reading is in Philippians. In Philippians. We are doing some work with... Uh, Salvation verses. And this is 
one of them. It's an important verse for our study. The text is Philippians 2, and I'm simply going to read verses 12 and 13, because that's the, uh, we might say, the screenshot that I want you to have. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved believers, as y'all, as you, as y'all, have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, his good pleasure. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're, thank, we're thankful for this passage. It teaches, uh, as always, an extraordinary truth for our spiritual lives. We pray that God the Holy Spirit would guide us as we study the passage so that we, we know precisely what it means. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. In the last two weeks, I have been teaching about the various uses of the word group salvation. And we can use the noun, uh, which is soteria, or the verb, which is sozo. And we would be able to do, um, have the same exercise here. And I've mentioned that as with any word, a definition is not established by, really, a dictionary. The dictionary only gleans the way the word is used in a particular culture. And so, the definition of a word is not established by some academic who says, I think this is what it should mean. It's established by usage. And when we're talking about languages, the term that we use, someone would say it's the term of art, is context. What is the context? And we say this all the time to maybe our friends. We'll say, well, how, do, how was that word used? What was the context in which it was said? Maybe a whole phrase, maybe a whole uh, conversation. What was the context? Because we understand that context change. And if the context changes then very often the meaning, not only of words, but of phrases, change. So uh, let's very quickly review. First of all, we're looking at, again, the word. We're, I'm going to use the word salvation. And by special request, by a certain Mitzi Bissell, who I won't mention, <laughs> we're going to take another look at our, really, the baseline for what we're trying to, to learn here, the distinctions that we're making. And that is our three stages or the three tenses of salvation. Now, most of you have seen this now. This will at least be the third time uh, in recent history. You've seen it in the past. Uh, I showed this when we were going through, when we were studying Philippians. We're back in Philippians. So this is our baseline we understand, as we look at these three uses of salvation, that it can be either phase one, phase two, or phase three. We have justification, we have sanctification, and we also have glorification. Those three areas. One of the problems, and I'll mention this a couple times, is that we really have a hard time envisioning salvation as being either phase two or phase three. We're just locked in to phase one. But that's inappropriate because we have three different usages. Usages, And when we talk about sanctification, we can have positional sanctification, we can have experiential sanctification, we can have ultimate sanctification. Positional and ultimate are point in time. Positional sanctification is in the moment you believe. Ultimate sanctification is when we receive our resurrection body. 
And in between, we have this experiential sanctification, which is, we could say, uh, continuing. It's ongoing. Hopefully, it's a building, a growing process. But it is not, as we would say in uh, languages again, it's not punctiliar. But it is, in fact, something that is linear. So, we've seen that Another way of expressing this or understanding it is that we are saved from the penalty of sin. And if we say that, then we understand that to mean that you were saved. We're talking to a believer. Oh, then you've been saved from the penalty of sin. The Lord Jesus Christ paid that penalty and you were saved. And at that moment, you are no longer, of course, this loses a little bit of the analogy here. We're never going to be required to atone for our own sins, but you're saved from the penalty of sin. We also say that you are saved from the power of sin. Uh, You have the ability, because we are in Christ, we have been placed in union with him, in his body. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ pays for the sins of the world. He atones for the sins of the world in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we are in him so that positionally, we also now have victory over death. We have victory over sin in our lives. We no longer need to be under the power of sin. We can break that power. Therefore, we would say, you are being saved. You are being saved through your spiritual life, the ongoing life, spiritual life. And then we say that there will come a time when we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. No longer will we be affected by this fallen body uh, that uh, is really the source of sin because it's the temptations that we have. And we say you will be saved. All right. Just that very quick review. Salvation versus what do they mean? Again, one of the things that we're trying to do here is to remember when we read a verse, we don't want to extract it from its context, from the paragraph from the chapter, from the book. And so we have these verses. And we the first verse that I show you is, again, a simple salvation verse. Uh, and the word for salvation here that I'm using is going to be phase one. Uh, we know that Paul and uh, uh, Barnabas, Barney, said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Our the verb here is sozo, and he is referring to phase one, salvation, positional sanctification. We don't know uh, of any conversation that occurred prior to that. And every now and then we'll uh, bump into somebody that will say, well, without doubt, prior to that, he'd explained, and then whatever it is they would like to add to salvation, they'll front load it. But the problem is we don't know that. And it's not stated. And there's no reason for us to believe it. What we have is, what must I do to be saved? And the response is, believe. Just believe. And one of the reasons that this is important to us, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One of the reasons this is important to us, particularly as we deal with our good news clubs, is that we really don't need to overwhelm the children with other things. We simply need to deliver the simple fact that they need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. And they are so ready to believe that. They are just really almost anxious to believe it. It's just a wonderful position to be in. You simply deliver it, the information. Now we've seen these others. For for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We see that this is a quotation from Joel 2 in Romans 10.13. We understand that the Apostle Paul at this point is not referring to phase 1, phase 2, or phase 3. This one would be better translated, you shall be delivered. Because one of the very basic definitions of the word group is to be delivered. Actually, one of the very first definitions is to be healed, to be saved from some malady, some disease. But another definition is 
to be delivered or rescued from something that is some danger, probably the best way to describe it. And that's how this is used. And I've promised to go back to Romans 10, 9 and 10 to, to work on that, 9, 10 and 11. Uh, we also saw for godly, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. And here we really could very easily state that therefore you need to feel sorry for your sins because it's feeling sorry for your sins that really is the preliminary to salvation. But the con- you have to take it out of context to come to that conclusion. And if you understand the context and you're reading along in 2 Corinthians, you'll say, that's, that's simple. He's talking about their spiritual lives. This being phase two, uh, this is experiential sanctification. And so that was very simple for us to understand. Uh, then last week we saw in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 2, uh, the Apostle Paul, again talking to the Corinthians, and he tells them, you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless, and I think a better translation here, otherwise, you've believed in vain. And, of course, many people, again, as soon as they read this, they believe that this has to do with phase one. But our very first clue, even if we're a bit unhinged from the context, should be that it's a contingency. We have a first-class condition here. If you're saved, if you do something. Well, salvation is only contingent on one thing, and that is believing. We know that. So if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, otherwise you... So that's our first clue, and if we go to the context and understand it, we realize that, again, that what we're saying here, what the Apostle Paul is teaching, is that it's experiential. Experiential, because he's talking to the... He's speaking to the Corinthians. He's teaching them about their spiritual lives through the entire book. And so we have this as well. So now... We come to our our passage in Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, work out a command here. Now, can you command someone to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it a gift that they freely accept? No, it's a free gift. And you can't, com- I mean, you could, but that's not the biblical approach. Believe, you know. Do it right now. No. It's, what must I do to be saved? Believe. Just simply believe. That's all you need to do. But Paul here commands, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, naturally, what do we have? You know, that's, that's the question. The phrase, of course, work out your own salvation. Again, if we follow our sort of knee-jerk reaction, we automatically accept this to be justification. Phase one, salvation. But the association of working out, work out here, that phrase, with salvation, should cause a few concerns in our minds. And the reason is that this is a direct contradiction to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Which I quoted, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of your works, lest anyone should boast. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then, right behind that, it's very interesting. He does say, for we are, you know, his workmanship, the Lord's workmanship. Not our workmanship. We are the Lord's workmanship. Which... We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works. That's really our commission after salvation. We now have a plan that we're to execute, and that that execution includes our life, our spiritual life, in serving, which the Lord has prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. In them what? In those good works. So what we have here is a direct contradiction, contravention of what 
Paul, now if we had another author, we might say, well, they're just kind of getting their signals crossed. No. Paul's writing both of these. So, the problem we have here is that could Paul be making contradictory statements? Could maybe the Philipp, the Philippians need something different than the, uh, the Corinthians? And the answer is no. No, that could not, that can't be the case. Paul is using salvation here in simply a different way. So, let's, we're in Philippians 2. What I'd like to do, we've read the passage. I would like to just take the time to do a little research. Let's turn back to Philippians 1, verse 6. And let's, let's take notice of what Paul is going to be saying, how he's going to teach this as he approaches Philippians 2. Let's begin in Philippians 1, verse 3. We're just going to walk through this. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, of y'all, Philippians, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with joy, you all with joy, for your fellowship. And I think a better word here for fellowship is partnership. Your partnership with me, Paul is saying. And this is a beautiful um, doctrine, I guess we could say. It's a beautiful concept. Because Paul was saying that the, the Philippians were partnering with him. And this always takes me back to many people that say, well, I really wish. And then they fill in you know, something that they could do in ministry. Now, I really wish I had this gift. I really wish that I could go to the mission field. I really wish that I had the ability. I really wish whatever abilities you have, whatever gift you have, is the gift that God has given you. And you can partner with the person that you erroneously wish you were by praying for them, possibly assisting them in their ministry, giving to that ministry. And that's what the flip... Specifically, the Lord uh, Paul was going to be referring to their gifts that they had given him. Remember, they gave beyond their ability, he says. And so Paul says, we're partners. My ministry is your ministry. We are in fellowship here. So it says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I need to stop just momentarily to look at this word gospel. It's another word that we have a very narrow, very narrow definition. The word gospel to us is a phrase, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Well, it is the gospel. That's the good news. But there's a lot more good news than just that phrase. And that's how Paul uses it most of the time. It is biblical doctrine. It is the Christian faith. He didn't just come to Rome to give a short phrase to Nero or to anybody else. He's teaching the Christian doctrine. And that's how he's using it here. They're not just fellowshipping in this one phrase. It's in the doctrinal teaching that we now have in the epistles. From the first day until now, being confident of this good very thing, that he who has begun a good work, this begins our uh, ex exploration into the word group ergon, which is the word for work or deed. It's translated several different ways, but that's the noun, and we're going to see it's also used in verb form. But he says, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And the day of Jesus Christ, here's the rapture. But it says, he began a good work in you and he will complete it. And a better translation there of the word uh, for completion, epitaleo, is probably he will bring it to completion. So that, it is 
this work that he began, you, you, you know, well, I was going to say, you don't begin a work and then leave it. Some of us do, you know. Some of us, you look around the house, we can say, well, I began that several years ago. I began that, I began this, I began that. But in reality, you begin a work and you realize you're going to continue to work with it. You're developing it until you can bring it to completion, until you're finally done with it. Now, that's a little insight to Philippians 2, 12 and 13 as it relates to coming to a proper definition there. But let's continue to work our way through here, so to speak. Just as it is right, proper for me, to think this of you all, of y'all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Again, this is not a very narrow definition of gospel. This is the Christian faith. And you'll notice he says he's in, he's in chains. What's our historical background here? The historical background is that Paul had visited Philippi first when he crossed from Troas over to Macedonia. That was the first place, we often say it's the first place that he established a church in Europe. And that was on his second missionary journey. He concludes the second missionary journey uh, and which is now occurring, which had occurred in the, oh, probably the early 50s maybe. And so he, he completes that journey, goes on a third journey, visits Philippi, we believe a couple times, went through the city, probably a couple times on the third missionary journey. And then on his third mission, at the end of his third missionary journey, remember he goes to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, while witnessing to the Jews, he ends up causing a riot. It all eventuates in him being uh, rescued by the uh, tribune and the cohort there. He's, he eventually ends up in Caesarea where he spends two years. And then he has this delightful cruise in the Mediterranean where he ends up over in Malta, uh, winters in Malta, and then finally makes it to Rome. Well, that's where he is. And we believe that he's there now in approximately A.D. 60. And he's writing to a church that's been established for probably about 10 years. But he's in Rome and he's under house arrest. And we studied that at the end of Acts, Acts 28. So he is imprisoned. He's incarcerated. He's in bonds. He's in chains. And that's important as we go forward here and look at the, the definition. And you're going to be, I'm giving you that information so that it's going to be very easy for you to possibly define the next time we see a certain word. So, confirmation of the gospel. You all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness. How greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. This is a letter that Paul's writing to the Philippians because they have supported him everywhere he's been. They have somehow found him and provided for him financially. And he is extremely grateful to them. Remember, this is the church that we think that Lydia, wonderful woman in Philippi, has uh, it has been a strong believer and is the basis for that church. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. There's, there's personal spiritual growth. That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, the rapture, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, let me continue to read here. I think this is all going to be beneficial. Verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Again, not a narrow definition, but for the Christian faith so that it has become evident to the entire, the whole palace guard, not just a few. He says here he has had an opportunity to not only evangelize, but teach biblical truth to the entire palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Marvelous. We can complain, we can moan about a lot of things, but... Our condition is really in Christ. Yes, is he, he might be hasped 
to a post. He might be chained to a Roman soldier even while this is being written, possibly dictated to someone. But he doesn't say, because here I am, Rufus right here, I'm chained to him. No, I'm chained to Christ. I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my bondage. Small fact that I'm here in Rome in, in prison. Not a big deal. And most of the brethren in the Lord have, be, have become confident of my chains, are more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife. And this happens in the ministry all the time. Someone is envious. And it's, it's, it's probably difficult. And uh, as a pastor, I can tell you that I, uh, I'm really hesitant to be critical of other pastors. It happens periodically, but it's, it's uh, something that you shouldn't do be, because you just have to believe that every pastor is doing his best to serve his Lord and his congregation and knows what the congregation needs or is teaching or doing what God wants him to do. Uh, well, we know that's not true, and here's one of our uh, evidence for that, that some are teaching out of envy, out of envy for who? Maybe Paul, maybe the way that he was able to communicate the word of God. They wanted to be that way, and they're really doing it out of pride, not out of love for the Lord. Envy and strife. But also here, some from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, not genuinely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. And so he says, you know, it's easy to tell that some of them are doing it because they think it's going to cause more difficulty for him, more hardship. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, this Christian faith. <clears throat> what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is communicated, is heralded here, we would say, is announced. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Now pay very close attention here, verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and supplication of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You would be happy to note, if you were following along in your Greek text, that the word here for deliverance is... Soteria. Oh. Well, why isn't it translated salvation? You say, well, maybe because Paul didn't want... Well, Paul, he didn't translate this. The editors believe that it has maybe a different sense than salvation. And you would be correct. But, if we're reading this... In the original languages, we don't have that benefit. We just come to this word that says soteria. And our natural inclination is to translate this, what? Salvation. Now the question is, and we have to ask this, whether it's the word deliverance or it's the word salvation, what does Paul mean? What is Paul saying? He says, for I know that this will turn out this what? This Christ being preached. We, have to, we always have to follow these demonstrative pronouns. And this one, uh, the antecedent, I believe, is the gospel. Christ being preached. will turn out for my soteria through your prayer and supplication. All right. Now, what I believe here is our editors do believe that this is has nothing to do with phase one, phase two, or phase three salvation. They believe that he is saying, it's going to work out for my deliverance from jail, from incarceration. So they don't translate this salvation. They recognize that soteria has another meaning other than believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who might be doubters in here, say, he's been teaching this now for four weeks and I really don't believe it. Well, these editors agree with me and say that there's probably another meaning here, and they say deliverance. But our question is, is that what Paul is saying? Is Paul saying that my preaching 
of that this message, this uh, Christian doctrine, is going to work for my freedom. Well, let's read on. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply, a better translation here might be the provision of needed resources, you know, the spiritual resources of the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, my confidence, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Is there a sense here that he's talking about getting out of jail? Being released? I don't think, even though he refers to his chains, that he's in prison, I don't think that's his purpose in saying this. He goes on to say, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit, production from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Now, I think that Paul is still using this word in one of our three definitions, either phase one, phase two, or phase three. And he's talking about this according to my earnest expectation and my hope, my confidence, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. This is his personal spiritual pursuit of his spiritual life. I don't want to be ashamed. I want to have boldness. I think, again, this should be translated salvation, but I would translate it experiential sanctification. It's going to work out for him. Everything that's occurring is also assisting him. Remember, Paul asks for prayer so that he can speak boldly at the end of Ephesians. He says, pray for me so I'll have boldness. And we often think of the Apostle Paul as having arrived. Paul never saw himself that way. It was a struggle, a spiritual struggle for him, just like it is for us. And so here at least we recognize that this is something different than phase one. Paul's a believer. We know it's not phase one salvation. Could it be uh, physical rescue, physical deliverance? Well, our editors believe so. Um, and I think there may be other translations that might not have deliverance there. But I think this is experiential sanctification for Paul. Let's jump over to verse 27. In verse 27, it says, Only let your conduct, your we could say your citizenship here on earth, be worthy of the gospel. Here we have it again. This Christian truth, doctrinal truth. Be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Again, for Christian faith, Christian truth. Biblical truth here. And not in any way terrified of your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. And that from God. Now, some of you might have your notes from when we went through Philippians. Um, I actually have a different Bible. The other one wore out, I think, somewhere in here. But here is soteria again, our word for salvation. Why didn't we translate it deliverance? Why didn't the editor say deliverance here? Because they don't believe that it has to do with physical Escape, physical deliverance. I'd certainly agree with them. But what do we say when we look at this? 
which is to them, their adversities, their adversaries rather, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For it, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Well, again, we have to determine what do we have here. What's the context? And we really have a contrast. We have, first of all, the adversaries who are on their way to perdition. Perdition, to sort of maybe make a little bit of a shortcut here. Perdition here, we use the, it's uh, in the family of words that describe Judas, who was the son of perdition. It means destruction. And I think Paul is talking about their ultimate end. Their ultimate end is the lake of fire. That's perdition here, destruction. So I believe that Paul is contrasting two ultimate ends. For them, their ultimate end is the lake of fire. But for you, your ultimate end is a resurrection body, eternal life. So I think this is phase three. I think this is glorification, ultimate sanctification. You see how Paul is using these words? And if we don't understand that there's a difference between salvation, you have a completely different interpretation of these passages. Now you might say, well, I don't know how big a difference it would make. Well, if, you're, if you want to know what the author is trying to say then you, you do want to know. And, and you might say now, well, boy, we're finding out that the English language is not very precise. Well, it's a wonderful translation. Soteria, that's, that's a fine translation with salvation. It's just that Paul uses soteria. And again, even if we were reading it in New Testament Greek, we'd have to determine what he meant by that word salvation, soteria. And I think here Paul is making that contrast to them. It's proof of their perdition and it's proof of your glorification. I think that's what he's saying here. So, then he continues on. That's how he, he concludes what in our uh, text is chapter 1. And is Paul talking to them about... This is a church that's been in position for 10 years the ones that have that have been giving to him, they understand giving like nobody else. Is he now trying to talk to them about the rudiments of salvation, how to believe? No, that's, that's not at all what Paul is doing. He's writing to believers, and he's trying to encourage them in their spiritual lives. And that's what he does in chapter 2. Our chapter 2, he breaks right in, therefore... If there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any com uh, comfort of love, if, and by the way, these are uh, first-class conditions, and Paul is saying, I'm using the word if, but we're saying for the sake of argument, it is true. It is true. It is true. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, if any affection and mercy command, imperative, fulfill my love by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. He's talking to the congregation to be of one mind. You are the body of Christ. You should be of one mind. Not duplicious. Not fighting. Not biting, as the text often will say but working together. Yes, we're different. Yes, we have our differences. Yes, we rub each other wrongly at times. But we're supposed to get over that. We're supposed to work together, be of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out for, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We're to be concerned about others. 
compassionate towards others, taking care of one another. And then he says, he gives the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let not this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, this appearance, this manifestation, did not consider it robbery, a better translation here, something to hold on to, to be equal with God. He didn't have to stay in heaven with the Father. But he made himself of no reputation. He, a better, I think a better translation is there, he emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and becoming in likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the person to whom Paul is bound. He's hasped to Christ. Bondservant. And he's telling them how they're to live their Christian lives. And our example is the Lord Jesus Christ, who could have stayed in heaven. But he demonstrates his love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, he dies for us. He gives himself. He executes the Father's plan. So what would we expect Paul then to say? You need to get saved. You need to get phase one justification here. No. He then says, therefore, making a conclusion, therefore, my beloved believers. He's, he, Paul loves these people. As you have always obeyed. This is an, a unique congregation. Paul leaves. They're right in step with him. Believing. Accepting. Fulfilling. Not as in my presence only. But now much more. In my absence. Work out your own salvations. He's saying. And the, the again the word work here means to apply yourselves to um, make spiritual achievement here, progress, uh, to bring about, to produce, we could say, your own salvation, experiential sanctification, phase two. Now, some could say, well, couldn't he be saying phase one, when they believe and they're supposed to kind of develop that. Yeah, that's phase two. That is phase two. That's what phase two salvation is all about. You don't stay over here at positional sanctification where you believed. You move from that. From that birth, you grow. And that's what Paul's saying. Work out, bring about your experiential sanctification with fear and trembling. For it is God who energizes you. And that's a better translation, I think, of the word work here. Who is energizing in you both to will. And the word to do here is another word for work. Working to will and to work for his good pleasure, his gracious purpose. And so, here we have, I mean, does the Apostle Paul here, is he teaching where's my question here? Is Paul teaching phase one salvation? Justification here. Therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's writing to believers. He's instructing these believers in the spiritual life. He's teaching perseverance in the spiritual life. And throughout the text, he mentions salvation. So is Paul teaching phase one salvation justification? Is Paul teaching works salvation? No. He writes, if you need this bit of information, he writes from the the prison cell. He writes Ephesians. Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And the doctrines, the biblical truths in them, are 
very close, very similar. Philippians is not going to contradict what he said in Ephesians. He just wrote that letter a little while ago. He's writing almost the same thing here. He's just writing it in a different way. Different words. Same thing. Same thing. We're to be working in our spiritual lives. Applying ourselves. And I think that's what we have here. So, our continued study here of the word salvation, hopefully, is, you know, some of the, hopefully some of the light is sh- shining in to our default position of always thinking of it as justification. And we've seen deliverance. We've seen, we, we know it's used in phase one. We don't have a problem with phase one. We just default to that. But we've also seen it used in two other ways, experiential sanctification and glorific- glorification. Now, the, the real challenge for us is when we're reading to kind of try to keep that in mind and realize that we have to fight the urge, you know, to veer off to the left here. Fight the urge, stay right there in the middle. Figure out what it means. And there's other passages that have the same effect on us. And we'll continue to take a look at those. This is not teaching work salvation, even though there are those who take it that way. Need to work, work for your salvation. Well, you'll never get there if you work for your salvation, unless it's experiential. Spar heads in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for the Apostle Paul in this wonderful epistle to the Philippians, uh, whom he loves and whom he is teaching and exhorting them, commanding them to continue in their spiritual lives. So that they, in fact, as he says in verse one, in chapter one, verse six, that it will come to the, they will be brought to the point of completion, to spiritual maturity, prior to uh, the rapture. Help us, Father, to understand the same thing: that we are working in our spiritual lives. We're not just here, waiting for the rapture, with nothing to do, so to speak. But there is much to do. Help us to be aware of it and accomplish it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.